so, for this part of the service, uh, we've been asked to uh, say a bit about Ephesians chapter 4, 17 to 32, following the series that you're doing in Ephesians. Um, thanks to the wonders of the internet, we've been able to listen to a few of the previous talks, so we've been able to build on that. I'm going to read the passage bit by bit, so if you have your Bibles, we'll just read a few verses at a time. So, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17. So, I tell you this, and insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity and they are full of greed. Well, what a start, eh? Isn't Paul being a little bit harsh? He's really not trying to be polite to Gentiles in these few verses, is he? It's no way to win friends and influence people to talk to them like that. Because he's actually writing to Gentiles when he's telling all these nasty things about Gentiles. So isn't he talking about the Ephesians that he's writing to when he's describing them as uh, impure and greedy and sensual and hardened? They are Gentiles. And telling Ephesians not to live like Gentiles it's a bit like telling the people of Hazelmere not to be English anymore I'm guessing most of you are English he's challenging their identity so what does he mean and why is he being so harsh well to find a bit about that it's helpful to look at Acts chapter 19 I don't know if you've ever done that we're not going to look at it because we don't have much time but if you want to look at it later in Acts chapter 19 we read that Paul had been in Ephesus and he'd been preaching the good news there for a couple of years already when the whole city rioted they nearly brought the Roman army down on themselves because of the trouble they were making they were furiously protesting against the effects of the message of Paul Paul himself had to be persuaded not to talk to the raging crowd for fear of his life. And all of this was because the people of Ephesus were already beginning to see the negative effects of Paul's extraordinary message on the worship of the goddess Artemis in their town. Their tourist souvenir business was threatened and some ringleaders had stoked the entire city up to a rage by a vitriolic concoction of ethnocentric religious pride and economic interest. So that explains Paul's extraordinary outburst in these few verses against the Gentiles. Let's read on and find out a bit more. Verse 20. That, however, is not the way of life you learned when you heard about Christ and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its evil, deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. So, now we see that Paul is indeed talking to Ephesians. However, the Ephesians he's talking to used to be like the ones that Paul mentioned above, but they aren't anymore. And in fact, it's because of the people he's writing to that the city had rioted. Paul had spoken so powerfully and performed such amazing miracles in the name of Jesus 
that many Ephesians had seen the futility and evil of their previous lifestyle and had changed. They were willing to break with their lifestyle, they were willing to break with their prevailing culture and they were willing to break with the state religion. One of examples that's given in Acts 19 is the magicians. The ex-magicians alone in Ephesus had burned their books of spells to a value of, they calculate, 8,300 weeks worth of wages. That was an extremely valuable bunch of books that these magicians had just put on the fire because they had completely abandoned that way of life. There was a genuine revolution going on in Ephesus. If Paul's words had fallen on deaf ears, then there wouldn't have been a riot. But his words had had such an impact that the rest of the city was beginning to feel threatened. The the economy of Ephesus depended heavily on the worship of Artemis, and this false goddess was being exposed as a feeble idol by the power of Jesus. So everyone whose livelihoods depended on her worship filled the streets to protect their interests, because a large number of their fellow citizens had been made new and were no longer willing to live in sensuality, impurity and greed. So what kind of power could possibly have such an extraordinary impact for good in such a corrupt environment? Of course, it's the power of Jesus. These people have been made new because of the truth that is in Jesus. There's a very clear distinction for the Ephesians between what they used to be and what they are now. They used to be bad, basically, and now they have been made new which means that instead of being separated from the life of God, as we see in verse 18, they are now created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness, in verse 24. The contrast is extraordinary. The foundation of the passage we are reading is the text that you've asked us to emphasise this morning. Verse 23, we are made new. The passage goes on to talk about, about a lot about things that we need to do, But the whole basis of it is something that has happened to us. We are made new in verse 23. And this new self has been created to be like God in verse 24. If we put our faith in Jesus Christ as our Saviour and acknowledge him as our Lord, we are already a new person created to be like God in righteousness and holiness. And the rest of this passage only makes sense and only applies to us if we are in that position. So we have an old self, which is bad, and a new self, which is good. But the new self is actually, in some ways, the original self, the way we were originally designed to be, as we read in Genesis. Adam and Eve were created in the image of God, and that's the new image that we're created in. We can only have any chance of looking like God, which we were intended to in the beginning, if we accept what Christ did on our behalf on the cross. Now I'm guessing, just for guess, that for most of us here, the contrast between the old person and the new person isn't as great as it was for the original readers of this letter. Some of those people had been exceedingly rich because of the magic powers with which they exploited people. But they turned their back on that, they burned their spell books, and they were now probably no richer than anyone else. Outwardly, their circumstances may have actually changed for the worse. But inwardly, they knew that they were new people on a new trajectory for the rest of eternity. Now, even if the contrast for us isn't huge, the reality is we are already made new if we are in Christ. And that is a gift 
from God. We have no claim to have done anything that's convinced God to choose us out of the rest of humanity. Our new self is a creation, and it's God who creates it. And this is very good news, right? Made me happy reading it anyway. So the good news is that we are made new. Having driven this message home, Paul wants us to look at the implications of this newness. Paul's exhortation to be made new is sandwiched between two instructions. One instruction to take something off, and another instruction to put something on. He's using language that we associate with clothing. But he's not talking about clothes. He's talking about selves. Now, that, that is a bit weird, isn't it? think you can put off one self and put on another self. But it does make sense in the context. Because the problem is that despite the fact that we are genuinely made new, our new self is created to be righteous and holy. We haven't actually lost our old self. Not completely. And we all know this in daily life, don't we? None of us are perfect, no matter how long we've been following Jesus. So, although it isn't easy to explain how we can have two selves at one time, we all know exactly how it works in practice. Because in fact, I think, most of the time, the challenge is to remember that we are new. Because the old self of sensuality, impurity and greed is very familiar and very comfortable. This is why Paul describes the desires of the old self in verse 22 as deceitful. We like the old self. I wonder how often an ex-magician in Ephesus wished he could just go back to charging exorbitant sums of money to convince desperate people that he could make their wishes come true rather than he himself doing something more practical and useful. And uh, I was struck by the potential resemblance between Ephesian magicians and the contemporary advertising industry, but I won't go any further into that. On the other hand, how often did a silversmith wish that he could still make and sell mini Artemises, little souvenirs, to throngs of worshippers, rather than have to make other things that possibly weren't so popular? And that was, even if he was allowed to continue in his profession, by the silversmith's guild, who protected their interests very strongly. So Paul starts with an inspirational reminder that we are completely new and that we are destined to become more and more like God himself before reminding his readers that the implications of this new identity are extremely practical. And for that we need to read on again. Verse 25 till the end of the passage we're looking at today. Therefore each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbour for we are all members of one body. In your anger do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. And do not give the devil a foothold. Anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, but but must work, doing something useful with their own hands, that they may have something to share with those in need. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. So, that's a brief summary, and to summarise it even more briefly, don't lie. Be angry, but don't sin. Do not give the devil the smallest chance. Do not steal. Work and do something useful for others. Watch what you say. 
Don't upset the Holy Spirit. Get rid of bitterness, rage, anger, brawling, slander and malice. Be kind and compassionate and forgive. Now, if I had more time, anybody could spend hours, weeks talking about all those things. There's an awful lot out there written and been spoken about on this. But what I want to look at in the time that we have left is the underlying reason Paul gives for these instructions. If we look at verse 25, he says, For we are all members of one body. In verse 28, he says, That they may have something to share with those in need. And in verse 29, Only what is helpful for building others up, that it may benefit those who listen. This is not a list of private ethics or morality. This is not a list of things to do so that I as an individual can please God and go to heaven. This list of instructions brings us back to the first half of chapter 4, which you presumably looked at last week. We we didn't see it on the um, website, so I assume you looked at the first part of chapter 4 last week. Um, The whole emphasis is not on me as an individual, but on my role in the community. And it's a community that's meant to be so tight-knit and close that it's described as a body. We aren't a club. We don't meet here now because we have a common interest that we all get excited about for an hour or so before then going back to something else, to the other interesting activities that we have have in common with another set of people, like going to work every day or going to football once a week or going to cinema when we can afford it. I don't actually know most of you here, but all the same, I have more in common with you than I do with my next-door neighbour or the lady at the bakery because you and I have been made new as part of one body. So we're a body, and as Paul has said earlier in chapter 4, a body is a unit that needs every part to survive and thrive. Like it or not, folks, we are now dependent on each other. And everything we do has to contribute towards keeping ourselves as a body healthy. Now there is a big danger in this idea that we are a special group of renewed people. The danger is that we start to think exclusively. We start to think that we are better than anyone else. We start to think in terms of us and them, inside and outside. If we start thinking like that, we've forgotten the basis of why we are a body. Firstly, as we've heard, we are made new. We don't do the making. We cannot boast about any newness there is about us. If there's anything better about us now than there was before, we cannot take the credit. Secondly, we keep messing up anyway to remind us that even in being made new, we're still weak and sinful. Thirdly, our newness is renewedness. We are being restored to the image of God as it was intended to be seen in us right from the beginning of creation. And when we think about that, that reminds us that everyone around us is also made in the image of God. Now, at the end of time, God will separate those who are not renewed and those who are renewed. But that's his job. It's not our job. Until then, we must honour and love the image of God in other people. In humility and in hope and in prayer that those people will come to be renewed as well as we have experienced and fourthly there's an aspect of the body of Christ that we don't often think about 
bodies are meant to grow until they are mature. And the body of Christ will not be mature until Jesus returns. So, this body of ours should be growing. Paul uses the language of growth about the body that we are part of elsewhere. And in this passage, the emphasis on looking after each other is not intended to make us inward-looking, but to make us so loving and so caring and so just and so good that other people will want to join us. And that leads me to repeat some of the excellent things that Chris Papworth mentioned a few weeks ago. Is he someone here? Or it sounds like he's somebody you know very well. Yeah, I don't know him, but... Uh, I'd like to remind you of a couple of the things that he said, particularly the fact that 40% of the population of the world do not know who Jesus was or what he came to do. That is nearly half of the population of the world who still have no idea that they can be made new in Jesus. The job of this body of Christ that we are part of is to grow to the ends of the earth 